The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. me to the Gospel of Mark, where we're in the second sermon from our series that Pastor York began last week. Mark chapter 1, reading at verse 29 to the end of the chapter. Mark 1, 29. Hear the word of God. And immediately he, Jesus that, that is, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Wouldn't it have been something to be part of this amazing beginning of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth? To see these wondrous signs and miracles of healing and casting out demons. And to see Jesus Christ preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, calling people to repent, to turn from their sinful lifestyles and to believe, to believe in God, to believe in him, to trust in him as their savior and Lord. This first chapter in Mark is like a whirlwind when you read through it. You just go from one brief episode to the next, 
described with a very economy of words, as we find in the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus just breaks onto the scene, and his ministry, his public ministry begins, and the kingdom of God clearly is breaking into history. These glimpses of Jesus' ministry here before us this evening in the second half of chapter 1 show the evidence of the kingdom of God coming. And this kingdom of God, this reign, this rule of God breaking into people's hearts and lives, both in outward manifestations and the miracles and in people being called to follow Jesus Christ in the way of belief and discipleship. I would like to break our study into three main points and then see three applications as well as we look at this series of incidents in Jesus' ministry. The first point is this. The power and glory of Jesus Christ is revealed in his miracles. And in our section this evening, we see miracles of healing, and we also um, have seen throughout chapter 1 the miracle of casting out demons. Pastor York looked at that last time. And Scripture clearly distinguishes between the two of those. But think with me briefly here that Jesus performed miracles. I know that most of you know that well. Most people know that. Miracles had a specific purpose. Yes, they were deeds of pity and compassion. Yes, they were very much in keeping with the salvation Jesus preached. But also they had the very specific purpose of attesting, testifying to the truthfulness of of Jesus' teaching, of what he preached. We saw last time that the people were amazed at Jesus' authority and how he taught. It was astounding to them. But here we see as well that they very much understand that the miracles verify that what he taught and preached is the truth from God. In a sense, we might say that miracles are demonstrations of the salvation Jesus Christ brought in a very tangible, we might say earthly way. The healing of diseases, the release of demon-possessed people from their demons. Both of these show and demonstrate the more fundamental, we would say, spiritual healing and spiritual restoration that Jesus Christ brings to people by forgiving them of their sins and giving them eternal life. As it were, it's an outward manifestation of what salvation is when it comes to a person's heart and life. Here we see this demonstrated in our text in two different episodes. I would like to briefly consider these. One is Simon's mother-in-law. We see that in verses 29 through 34. Here they were, and here Jesus' name isn't even used as this section is introduced. He's just called he, and immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue. They've been in Capernaum, and now they enter Simon Peter's house. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. In those days, a fever wasn't thought to be kind of a um, symptom of what could be a variety of sicknesses. A fever was thought to be, in a sense, uh, a sickness in and of itself. They tell Jesus about her, and he takes her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began 
to serve them. What an act of compassion. And as I said, a picture of the gospel's power. Jesus restores her to health. He restores her, as it were, to what she was meant to be. He restored order and purpose to her life, you would say. And immediately, Mark records that she begins to serve others. In fact, this one glimpse of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in history gives us a picture, we would say, of the final form of God's kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, where God will restore all things through Jesus Christ, and God will make all things new, and he will wipe away every tear, and he will right every wrong. Simon's mother-in-law being healed is just a down payment, a, a foretaste of that final glorious state. But then later in the in our text, in verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. It's important that we understand something of the nature of leprosy and what a terrible suffering this would involve. I haven't seen the new Ben-Hur, but I still remember as a child seeing the Charlton Heston version of Ben-Hur and just as a child thinking, leprosy, what is that? That sounds so terrible. And there's a, a famous scene in that movie from long ago in which Jesus heals a leper. Leprosy, we're told by Bible scholars, was a term that was used to probably cover a a variety of skin diseases, including what we would now call leprosy, or what historically has been called leprosy. But someone with such a disease would not only face the suffering from the terrible condition itself, but would also be designated ceremonially unclean. That designation required isolation. The rabbis taught about this, that a person like that would have to be separated from his family and from society in general. That terrible fate to live apart from all the blessings of common life, just think how terrible that would be, consigned, we might say, to this living death of stigma and rejection and isolation. Really, when you think of it, what a powerful picture of the spiritual reality of the fact that all of us by nature are spiritually unclean because of our sin. We are spiritually in that same condition before God. And what happens to this leper when he he kneels and cries out to Jesus Christ and Jesus is willing to heal him? we see enacted the fact that Scripture makes it clear that the law shows us our sin. In a sense, the law condemned the leper to his life of isolation. The law, in a sense, judged him and showed what was his case, but the law could not heal him, could only declare him to be unclean. Only Jesus is able to heal the leper to make him clean again. And so we see that miracles attest to who Jesus Christ is, the glory and power of Jesus Christ, and they verify his teaching to be true. 
But also, I would like to see, as we look at this text, and maybe very familiar stories to all of this, but notice the second point here, the power and glory of Jesus is revealed supremely in the preaching of the gospel. Look at verses 35 to 39, and look what happens here. Let me read them again to us. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. You could have called this sermon a man with a purpose. Jesus' purpose statement for ministry is revealed in verse 38. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And it's indefinite whether he means that is why I came out of Capernaum uh, early this morning or that is why I have come out in my public ministry. I think both are probably implied there, but certainly the foremost is that Jesus is giving the purpose statement of his ministry. And it may be surprising to us because someone who doesn't stop to think about this or read the Bible very much might just think, well, Jesus came to do all kinds of wondrous works. He was a wonder worker. No, not exactly. He worked miracles, yes, but clearly we see that miracles were very important, but they were, in a sense, subsidiary to this preaching ministry where Jesus declared the truth of God. Of course, that goes along with just the very essence of Jesus' life, which was to live under the law and to bear our sins on the cross and rise from the dead. He was doing all of that as well. But as he did that, he preached the gospel. That was the purpose. And he went throughout Galilee preaching, and his miracles attested to the truthfulness. Here in verses 35 to 39, we see Jesus reaffirming the purpose of his ministry as the kingdom of God breaks into history, and he's declaring the rule and the reign of God over people's lives and calling people to submit to him, to believe in him, to entrust themselves to him, to yield to his lordship. Reminds me of Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jesus clearly could affirm that verse, the importance of preaching. It's interesting that In a sense, we see the primacy of Jesus' preaching ministry reflected in two negatives that come out in this text. I want us to think about two things. One is the fact that when Jesus cast out demons, he charged them not to speak. Interesting that Pastor York looked at that last time. And you might think, why did Jesus tell the demons not to speak? He was the Son of God. Why did he care whether the demons told anyone about that? Well, the point is, Jesus knew that the people at this point in his ministry would be confused by that. He knew that if the demons were to say anything about that, they would be doing it as a way to undermine his ministry ministry to bring conflict prematurely. It was not the right time for Jesus to teach fully about his identity. That would come as his public ministry unfolded. But at this point, he did not want that to occur. 
And so Jesus had such power and authority that he could just command the demons and they would not speak. But I think it's also interesting to note the negative about this story of the leper being healed. And as you read the story, you see that Jesus gives this very stern warning. Our Bible in the ESV says in verse 43, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Some translations are even stronger than that. The idea, this is a very serious warning. And sometimes, I remember in my early Christian's days, I would read that and think, why was Jesus doing that? Was he just kind of saying, I want to be humble and, you know. Uh, but he didn't really mean, go, don't go tell everyone. Yes, he really meant that. The leper disobeyed Jesus' stern warning. And that ties into what Jesus' purpose was. If the leper went out and just told everybody what happened, what would happen next? Everybody would think of Jesus primarily in terms of a miracle worker. Bring your sick, bring your demon-possessed. We know that happened, but as this story unfolds, notice that Verse 45 gives us the so-called epilogue to the story. But he, this man, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus didn't want this to happen. He knew this would happen. He knew how people behaved. He knew how people thought. He didn't want to be limited, so he couldn't even go into towns. And the fact that this leper took it upon himself to disobey Jesus' clear and stern command shows what a problem this would be. Jesus was very aware that Satan would seek to distract him from the fundamental purpose of his ministry and life. This reality becomes clearer as time goes by. And later in the Gospels, we see Jesus condemn Capernaum as a town that by and large rejected him. In fact, we know that Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum on the day of judgment because Capernaum had been given such privilege. Jesus' purpose of ministry was not to draw curious crowds and dazzle them with miracles so he could get a following. No, Jesus' purpose was to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom of God, the rightful rule of God over our lives, calling everyone to believe in him, to repent, to submit their lives to God's absolute claim upon them. And now it was all being distracted. Of course, in the sovereignty of God, this was not going to ultimately uh, distract Jesus from the purpose of his ministry and life how important the preaching of the gospel is. And we see how damaging it is when the church of Jesus Christ is distracted from the primacy of preaching in the church's life and ministry. I think of historic, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches that are now empty shells. And probably I would say the primary reason for that is the absence of the preaching of the Word of God. I was reading an article the other day that talked about a church in Reading that in the 1970s had an attendance of 700. 
And now, last year the attendance was 70, and now it's usually not even 30. Just in that short span of time, the church is gone. And I had to read that, and I said to Patty, I believe that's because the preaching of the Word of God was abandoned. Our final point is the divine enabling for Jesus to carry out this ministry came through prayer. The divine enabling for Jesus to carry out this public ministry of working miracles and preaching the gospel came through his prayer life, through his communion with his Father. Think about this. Jesus has two natures. He's different from us in this way. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. The divine nature of Jesus Christ needs no strengthening. The divine nature of Jesus Christ is the omnipotent God. The divine nature of Jesus Christ doesn't need guidance. But the human nature of Jesus Christ needs guidance, needs to learn. As a baby, he in his human nature, learned, had to learn to speak and say words and all of these things. The human nature of Jesus Christ needed strengthening in the wilderness when he was tempted for 40 days and angels came and strengthened him. And he needed help as to his human nature in Gethsemane when angels came as well and strengthened him. And the human nature of Jesus Christ needed guidance, needed to understand and continue to regularly reaffirm the will of the Father as he carried out his public ministry. And here we see Jesus get up very early in the morning while it is still dark. And in a little while, the disciples are going to come and find him, and Mark's gospel tells us that they give him bad advice. You can just see Simon come blustering in. Simon probably, Mark's gospel is written from Simon Peter's perspective. And You can just imagine Simon probably was the one that got up early enough to be the first one to discover Jesus is gone. Where did he go? Things went really well yesterday. Look, when the Sabbath was over, when the Sabbath ended is when all the crowds came the night before because then they were allowed to travel and carry people and things like that. And they were out there as soon as the sun went down. And what a great night of ministry that was. Where's Jesus? I better go find him. I can just see Simon hiking up out out of town looking for him. And finally, he, along with maybe others of the disciples, found him. And this is their advice. They said to him, everyone is looking for you. What's the purpose of that advice? It's obvious, isn't it? Hey, things are going well in Capernaum. Come on back. We've got a good thing going here. Let's not mess it up. What are you doing out here? Where are you going? You know, we've got to be there bright and early. It's time. He said to them, And there's where he says the purpose statement. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The disciples don't have good wisdom for him. The crowds, the multitudes, they're not going to have any wise wisdom for Jesus, how he should carry out his ministry. Kind of reminds me of the presidential campaigns. Everybody's got their idea of what the campaign should be like. But... We know that scriptures say the multitudes are like sheep without shepherd and the religious leaders are blind guides and Satan is always trying to trip up the Lord's anointed one. Jesus needed to live in communion with the Father to walk the pathway of the Father's will 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that could only happen if he was in regular communion with his father. In fact, it's very interesting that in Mark's gospel, there are only three times that Mark describes Jesus praying like this. It happens in chapter 1, which we're looking at here, which is at the beginning of his public ministry, a very critical period in Jesus' life. It happens again in chapter 6, verse 46, right in the middle of the book, after the feeding of the 5,000, right before he walks on the waters. And again, a critical moment. We know that when the people are receiving physical food, and in John's gospel, they, you know, they really want to make him king then. If you're going to give us food, then please be our king. Again, bringing into perspective what is the purpose of his ministry. And then the final place in Mark's gospel is in Gethsemane in chapter 14, near the end. And in all of these, even in Gethsemane, really, when you think of it, Jesus is alone, even though there the three disciples are a little ways off, but they're far from him spiritually and they're falling asleep. He's alone at a decisive point in his ministry, each at night, each with Jesus in solitude, and each recalling, in a sense, the wilderness experience of temptation. Notice in verse 35 of our text, it says that Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. It's a very vivid phrase literally a double term. We might translate it literally, he went out to a wilderness place. Now, Capernaum, Galilee, this was an agricultural area with many villages, and it wasn't like the wilderness, which was south of there, which is where Jesus had gone when he was tempted by the devil. I think of Capernaum kind of like Lancaster. You've got little villages, you've got nice farms all around. Yes, you can go out in the countryside, but that's really not the sense of a wilderness place. You know, if you wanted to get out into the wilderness and do wilderness backpacking, you don't come to Lancaster, right? (laughs) There's no way to get away from houses and people. You can drive on the most backpack road in Lancaster, well, for the most part. Maybe you can tell me there's a a quarter-mile stretch somewhere that nothing's there. But if you wanted to get out into the wilderness, go out west somewhere where there's wilderness, really, in that sense. But the point is here, Mark uses this term, and this isn't the only place where he uses this term. Uh, It's a description of, of what would not be typical of the area around Capernaum, like I said, but it brings to our mind that something is going on here that is similar to the initial temptation in the wilderness. It harkens back to that. What happened there? There we know Jesus experienced Satan's temptation to do ministry, to let his ministry be formed by Satan's temptation, to be something other than the Father's will. And Jesus resisted that in the wilderness day after day and finally triumphed completely. No doubt this language suggests the same kind of thing is happening here. Maybe not that Jesus was being tempted to that degree, but that still Jesus needed this time of prayer and communion with his Father as to his earthly nature to reaffirm his purpose, 
Nobody else was going to help him do this. I can't imagine how hard that would be. I need the body of Christ around me. I'm glad we've got a pastoral staff and elders and lots of good books on my shelf. Jesus didn't have any of that. Jesus had the word of God and everyone else was going to be misguided and misdirected. And so in each of these times in the gospel of Mark, in each decisive point as the gospel unfolds, there was some aspect of affirming Jesus' intention of doing the will of God. And we also believe that Jesus was being strengthened and enabled to carry out that ministry. Part of the fundamental nature of prayer, part of the fundamental nature for each of us in communion with God is that in prayer, we again and again align our hearts and minds to the heart and mind of God. We align our hearts to God's will. Prayer is much more than just, we know it said, putting a nickel in the machine and getting something out. It has to do with worship. It has to do with confession and thanksgiving, but also this sense of understanding God's will. Someone just put it this way, clarity of purpose comes from intimacy with the Father. If you want to be focused on God's will in your life, you need to spend time with God. The disciples have this worldly view of success and ministry purpose. Come on, get on with it. Everyone is looking for you. Come, come, Jesus, and meet your adoring crowds. And Jesus will have nothing of it. No, he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And probably Mark abbreviates healing and casting out demons just to casting out demons because that shows more powerfully, in a sense, the breaking in of the kingdom of God and the conflict with the spiritual realm. The mission of the kingdom of God is advanced through the preaching of the gospel, and the power for doing that comes to a life lived in communion with God. Well, I guess you can guess where some of our applications are going to go. Let me just look at three of them briefly. One, give yourself anew to prayer. We've seen something here of how the Son of God himself needed regular communion with his Father. One key element of prayer is prayer is essentially a response to God's word, his written word. You and I need to be affirming the word of God in our lives daily, and prayer is to be a part of that. We do not, by our innate instinct in human nature, know the will of God. All you have to do is look at our society to see that. People are committing all kinds of egregious sins against God, and they don't even know it's wrong. They don't have any clue that it's being wrong. We must be constantly filling our minds with the truth of God's word, and then as we meditate and pray, asking God for his wisdom, we more and more come to understand how all of God's word, all the promises, all the commands, the character of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, how all these have application to our lives as we seek to submit to the king and affirm his rule and his will over our lives. So how we need to be praying for God's word to have its intended effects on all of us. But secondly, a word of application about the gospel, and that is this. If you have not received the good news of the gospel by turning to Jesus Christ, receive him. Here we see in Mark chapter 1 this bursting onto the scene of the king of kings. 
this call of the King of Kings, preaching in all the synagogues throughout Galilee, yes, healing the sick, casting out demons, the kingdom of God has come. And with it comes this call to trust this King, this gracious Savior and Lord, to turn from your ways of sin and selfishness and to submit your entire life to this Savior and Lord. Have you done that? Maybe some of you have been hearing the gospel for some time, maybe for many years. Have you bowed before the King of glory and submitted your life to him? Yes, that will take a lifetime to work out in living and growing in Christ, but the entrance to the kingdom comes by receiving the king. And our third application is this. Stand in awe of the sinless, glorious, powerful Son of God. We see this great and compassionate Savior here who so thoroughly identified with us in our humanity. What an amazing thing. Here he is with Simon's mother-in-law, with this leper, with people in such need The divine Son of God become man to identify with us. What an astounding thing. During the Revolutionary War, a loyalist family by the name of Honeymoon, I think that's before anybody used that term for what we use it, but anyway, the Honeymoons lived in the little hamlet of Griggstown near Princeton. John Honeymoon was a cattle dealer and butcher, who always seemed to be getting into trouble with the Continental Army in the New New Jersey area. A number of times he was brought into custody for some offense, and then he would end up either escaping or being released somehow. He had an Irish wife, and they had four children that they were raising in this little town. And being Tories, loyalists to the crown, they faced the anger of their neighbors many times throughout the eight-year war. John was indicted several times for high treason, aiding the enemy. On certain occasions, they faced mobs of neighbors threatening to burn down their house, especially threatening the wife and kids if they didn't produce this traitorous John. And so it was to the wonder and awe of the whole town and surrounding community when, in 1783, at the end of the war, General George Washington himself rides up with a party of mounted officers to the town and stopped in front of whose house? John Honeymoon's. And General Washington himself dismounted and walked up to the porch and warmly thanked John for his services to the country during the war. And as it turns out, You might have already known the story. John had volunteered early on in the war to be a part of Washington's secret spy network. And it was necessary that he maintain this loyalist front while managing to get himself captured once in a while so he could give vital information to General Washington. And my point in telling this story is that think of the sense of awe and wonder when General Washington himself came up there. To have Washington himself come to your home to, in a sense, save you, to vindicate your honor and reputation, to stop you from any more danger from what your neighbors might do in trying to burn down your house. It's said that Honeymoon's daughter Jane told the story of that day as long as she lived. 
such an amazing thing. Well, Mark's gospel tells us of one greater than George Washington, as much as we respect him. One who came to our earth, you could say, who came to our front porch to save us from our sin. One who came to save us from eternal dishonor and ruin. Love him. Adore him. Trust him. Give him your life, whatever the cost might be. This is your Savior and King. May you be satisfied with him. Let us pray. Father, we do cry out to you. We see the gospel accounts. They're really an old story to many of us. We've read them many, many times. Let them come with newness to our eyes. Let them come with a power to our hearts. Let our lives not be untouched and unchanged by this. Help us to go out into this evening, this week, glorying in Jesus, in his power and authority revealed, in his mercy and compassion to sinners who are certainly in need of salvation. Father, let us have that same spirit. Let us have that same heart. May Jesus be formed in us, and may our hearts be lifted up with joy in what he has done. We pray in his name. Amen.